Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. Hi, Neglected Podcast listeners. This is your host, Giovanna, and I am here today with a very special guest. Her name is Whitney. Say hello, Whitney. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and this is actually the first time that we are meeting in person. We talked on the phone last night for a little bit, like maybe 30 minutes. And yes. I remember on the phone, love talking to you. <laughs> Definitely think we're going to be friends after this. So I'm super excited to gain a friend. Um but yeah, so we're just going to be having our first conversation, really, or second, on air. So I'm super excited to be able to do that. Um, and so, Whitney, tell me just about you, like where you're from. Tell us what you are willing to share about your family, your background, all that fun stuff. Um, so my name is Whitney Gilliard, and I am uh, co-founder and chair of Gilliard & Company. Mm-hmm. We are a nonprofit that works on meeting the needs of foster care. But um, all of that, like we kind of mentioned, I'm so glad that you called us yesterday and yeah. we had a conversation mm-hmm. so you could meet today. Um, but I don't know, like when people ask that question, it's always like it's it's so crazy how God worked everything to be where we are today. But mm-hmm. um I am married uh, to, with a, to a veteran, and then we have a five-year-old son. Okay. We live in Savannah, but I'm from Washington, D.C. originally. Okay. And um, our entire family has been impacted by the foster care system and, mm-hmm. um, and, and doing charity work. So I myself was in foster care, so that's what kind of led for all of this and, and being here today. Oh. So, yeah, but thank you for having me here. Of course. And I'm so excited to, at some point, definitely talk about your organization and how you guys help the needs and meet the needs yeah. of foster care. But I do want to go back a little bit because you mentioned that, that your life was impacted by mm-hmm. foster care, that you actually were in foster care for a while. So um, take me back there. How old were you when you were in foster care? I was roughly 14 years old entering foster care. Mm. And um, I've lived in many places um, over like, I always say the magical word, the magical number 18, because I was up until the amount that I can like finally keep track on the last time I checked when I was like, you know, right before a court day while I was in care, like I kind of tallied up all these places I was at and it was Mm. sure enough, 18 places and um, not all of the locations were, you know, foster homes. I was actually primarily in residential institutions and hospitals Mm. and Mm. um juvenile detention center way before i found i got placed anywhere in a foster home so yeah and so what was that journey for you so for at 14 yeah it sounds like things significantly changed for you um and for those i would even say for me i don't really understand much about like how foster care works so how how did that work for you so when I was in, well, I went into foster care because I went through quite a series of traumatic situations as a kid. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I was born in America, but I lived in Vietnam for five years for the sake of, you know, there wasn't enough money to take care of me. And I was born out of wedlock and mm-hmm. being in a traditionally, you know, Asian household that was just not acceptable is not okay. Yeah. So um, out of all of the choices, I was sent to live with friends and all the way in another country. And then... Um, right around the time I was five, I was brought over here. So going right when I entered America was when I experienced at five years old. I mean, look at my son. My son is five and I can never imagine him going through 
the horrendous stuff that I went through, right? Yeah. So it was up until like I was 14 years old, like when I was in high school, well, no, peaking middle school where I was like, you know what, like what's happening to me, the abuse that was happening to me, it was not normal. Like it, that no. was when I identified it was not normal. Mm-hmm. And I kind of started building anger and um, frustration and, and being totally rebellious. And I, I just didn't, it was just not like, it wasn't okay what I was going through. So yeah. I ran away and when I ran away, I got arrested by um, police officers that were looking for me. And I, I mean, throughout the time when I was gone, I mean, I was, I was, they couldn't find me for like about two days. And mm-hmm. I just got into a whirlwind of like, drug you know problems and all these things and being around people that were predators and it was just the only place that I ran to yeah so when that happened the police officer by the time they found me I was I was off the chain like I was Mm -hmm. just so angry and I started fighting them and then I got arrested and then I got placed into juvenile detention center when I was there then they told my father like we found her we found her kid and this is where she's at and we think it's best that she stays here. CPS was called. They did an investigation. And then I was placed into foster care. So yeah. with that history initially, I think entering the foster care system was when, you know, my caseworkers and everyone was my treatment plan. So, so to call it. So in foster care, you do have a treatment plan. You have your counselor. You have your therapist. I mean, yeah, your counselor, your psychiatrist, a caseworker, bio parent, or some sort of legal guardian that you originated from. And then you have, you know, any sort of legal representatives. And they're there. And I think that um, when they looked into what I went through, it was very clear there's no turning back. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot go back. Mm-hmm. Um and I didn't realize how bad, I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize how bad it was until yeah. suddenly people outside said, you can't go back, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's why I ended up staying majorly in hospitals. It was, oh. there was just no, if you looked at my, my situation, there was just, there's no way anybody could possibly, you know, and, and when you're trying to diagnose things, there's no way that somebody can automatically bounce back from that and be okay from that. Yeah. So, so for you and the decision that the treatment plant, the treatment team made was that hospitalization was the best way to treat the trauma. Yeah. Is that, is that what the decision was? I, it was. And I believe that's why they, they originally put me in, you know, residential placements was gotcha. so that yeah. I, I can get, you know, therapeutic treatment so that I can mm. be on medication to stabilize myself. Um, but I will also say, I didn't realize that I was, you know, I was diagnosed with over a handful of conditions and I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize all those things were wrong with me. All I knew was that I was being abused at home. Yeah. That was all that I knew. I didn't know that there was something wrong with me. Mm. But I felt like they had to do that in order to provide me medication, mm-hmm. you know. So, so that's that's why I believe I primarily stayed in hospitals and residentials. Yeah. So, how long were you in a hospital or residential? So, so with the journey for you, you're saying that it was from juvie, you went yeah. to a hospital to get treatment, right. and from treatment, then it was residential. And, and at any point there, are, are you going into foster homes, or is it still just kind of in those spheres? Yeah, it was, it was still within that, it was still within that area. Like, I, it got to the point where it wasn't, like, it came from a good place where mm-hmm. it was, I'm trying to help somebody, you know, this kid get okay, get better, and then it started ricocheting into this whole, like, that was that was my placement like that was that that is a place considered home for whitney because 
there was no foster homes. There are no foster homes. So in a way for me as a kid who've lived in these places and I'm already used to it, that's the place that they're going to put me in until mm-hmm. there are homes available. And there are really no homes available at the time. There's still no homes available today for a lot of children in foster care. Yeah. No, and so. I think that that's the... I don't ever want to feign that ignorance is anybody's, like, is the community's fault or anything like that. But I know for me growing up, my interaction with foster care had always been that someone in my church, going through a primarily black church, someone in my church was doing foster care, but that's all I knew. I didn't understand that... um, that they were stepping into a situation. I didn't understand yeah. how even you yeah. would step into a situation. Yeah. Like in my family, there, uh, there's no history of that. My yeah. dad was adopted, but it's not like we were engaged in right. that. Right. It's not like I heard that at my church and being engaged in that. And so what I've learned about foster care has been through just honestly meeting right. people who are taking children into their homes in and who may work as a social worker. And so there's so much limited knowledge. And so that's why I'm really thankful for this platform and also really thankful that you're willing to share um, just what that experience must be like. Because just the ages you're saying, those are really formative years. Like your teenage years is is when you're figuring out your autonomy and when you're figuring out just how life works versus like what you this is when you're moving away from like adults are perfect like maybe maybe there is more outside of what I'm learning but for you at 14 it was maybe what I'm dealing with isn't normal maybe it's not normal to experience abuse maybe it's not normal how I'm feeling and it came out in anger which makes sense because at 14 like we don't have coping skills Mm -hmm. like that's what we're learning then right I mean I think now we, especially this is like my council brain going, I think that <laughs> I am seeing more yeah. of a push of teaching our yeah. children yeah. coping skills. But I know I, I didn't learn anything right, until right. my 20s, honestly, and how to cope. So for you, it came out in anger. That makes complete sense. It's, it was just, you know, it was at that at that point where I was finding who I was. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when you're 13 and 14, especially as a young woman, a lot of things are happening to you physically, you know. Mm-hmm your body and everything and you're trying to figure out who you are and it I remember feeling and and it breaks my heart when I think about how I felt as a kid you know there's like me now looking at younger Whitney and yeah break and my heart breaks for her because it was who I was was somebody at the expense of you know a predator yeah that's who I was at the time and I felt completely broken I felt shattered and at the time little Whitney didn't understand why and then now as now I'm a mom myself mm-hmm. who I pick my son up and he's five and he's running around with all little boys and girls it's it is so it is like if I when I think about what has happened to me I it almost as if I can't breathe when I yeah. fathom like I can't I can't ever see anything like that happening to a child I can't you know but it it happened to me. So during that, during those teen years, it definitely was when I, I I didn't know who I was. I couldn't find who I was. And then on top of that, traveling amongst the foster care system, I will say like, it's, it's always like baffled me. And I actually told a friend of mine the other day when I was um, talking about the work that we do. And I'm like, it, it, who like who would have thought after going through foster care myself I still don't know much about it because I you know everything is new all the time with every single Mm -hmm. case that we work with but at the same time though I don't understand why a topic that is so heavily you know 
hurt it's it's hurting humanity Mm-hmm. Why is that not being brought more into the public light? Yeah. There are over 430,000 children. And that number keeps going mm-hmm. and going and going. And so steering away from like what our community can do, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but you know, it's it definitely is having an insight on when you're a child in the foster care system. And I, I don't go to foster care because I had a great life. I didn't go in there because I had a great life. I went there because it was that or I die. Yeah. You know, that's how bad it was. It was either that or I die. So I ended up in foster care. And no matter what crap the system experience was, there was always a part of me that was like, at least I'm alive today. Mm. But when you're a kid, it sh- you shouldn't have to, f- you shouldn't, those are not trade-offs. Those things are not trade-offs. Yeah. But that was, and that is for a lot of kids in the foster care system. Yeah. No, I think that's what impacts me is just how easy it is to not be informed. And I, and I don't mean it in a crass way, but it's just if it's not affecting you, if it's not in your sphere, mm-hmm. it is so easy because it's not in the forefront. Yeah. You know, like it's not unless you have it close to you. And so I think that that is something that hurts me when I hear those statistics. I'm just thinking like, man, like exactly what you're saying. And I'm sure that it comes from a different place for you is like, well, why am I not hearing about this more? Um, And why don't I know more about it? Yeah. Because I think honestly, it's just if it's not in my sphere and not seeking out the information, not seeking out stories. I think um, sometimes our community who feels that way, I always tell them wherever I go, I always try to make it an opportunity to, for anyone who feel like they can't relate to foster care, for anyone who feels like they can't grasp the concept of getting adopted and adopting, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like if you've ever came and found God yourself, if you've ever, gave up all of your former life to walk a whole new life with Jesus, then you know exactly what foster care feels like. And you know exactly what adoption feels like because it came from a wretched place, a place where it was dark and you just wander and you don't know what place you can go to call home. You don't Mm -hmm. know experiences will bring to you to call shelter. But when you find God and when you find Jesus and when you call on him and he brings you home, that that right there is foster care and adoption yeah no matter how often i've traveled no matter all these places i've wandered because i felt broken and i was hurt and i didn't matter whether i had a mom or a dad or anybody i found christ when i was in foster care Mm. and had it not been for that i I don't I, i also don't think i'd be here today because the other thing about having been in the foster care system is you deal with a lot of mental turmoil you do Mm. Like you you absolutely do. You end up feeling, you know, like I I, I went through ups and downs of should I live or should I go? Should I live or should I go? Because this this not finding a home while you're in foster care, this Mm -hmm. taking a trash bag and calling that your suitcase, laying on a bed and it smells different from the last place that you were at. And then taking, you know, um, clothes from other people because yes they're gently warm but they're never gonna be they're never yours it was you never have that experience of opening up and cracking open a bag or throw or or a tag and that's not yours having go through that that's purgatory for a child Mm. that is purgatory that is that is living hell for a kid to go through and and 
and that's why even now as an adult and I do stay in contact with, you know, my foster brothers and sisters. And when I do, when we are reaching into the foster care system, there's a lot of like outcomes where, you know, I have one foster sister who's not doing well mentally. Another one is in a mental hospital Then I have another one who, you know, just survived suicide. Yeah. All of that happens because mm-hmm. of those experiences. Yeah. So... No, because at, at our core, we want to belong. Yep. And at our core, we want to know yep. that we're seen and we're loved just for being us. Yep. It doesn't matter how introverted, yep. how antisocial, how extroverted, yep. how I, you don't like physical touch or you do like physical touch. It's at our core, we are built for connection yep. and to know that we're seen and just what you outline, it makes complete sense to me. And those are things that you honestly don't think about unless you're mm-hmm. interacting with stories or you're involved in some way. Yeah. Because just that, like yeah. of having to have just, I love that you use that language to describe it because I feel like it is that real. It must be yeah. that real because at the same time, that impacts how you feel about you. Yeah. And so when you look back on that, how did it make you feel about you having the, the trash bag, having the bed to bed, not knowing where is my home base? Like, how did that affect how you felt about you? I felt like trash. Mm. I felt like my favorite movie is um, I Am Sam. That's mm. my favorite movie because there was a scene in there where um, there was a, there's various scenes that I love. But one of them says, you know, I felt I feel disposed, but I'm disposable. Mm. And I felt disposable. I felt like my time was up wherever I went. I can only stay there for a period of time, however long that program allows, you know, so I am just here for six months. I am here for three months. I am in this foster home up until they can't stand me anymore because they're not planning to adopt me. And I know that, you know, and it's not whether that's a bad thing or not. It's just as a human being, I felt disposable as a child who's trying to find my own identity. I knew I was disposable. And as an adult recovering from that, there are still times where I feel disposable. Yeah. I feel like I can, I carry a trash bag. I take on, you know, hand-me-downs and, and, and there's, I'm, I'm not against that, you know, but I'm saying when you're in foster care, you have lost so much of your identity. Nothing is yours. Yeah. You can't, you can't change your hair color. You can't wear clothes that you like. You can't go to a store and pick out, I like cat shirts. I'm going to pick out shirts that has that design because I love it. You can't do that. What money do you have that's going to do that for you? Who's going to take you there? Mm. I have to go clothing shopping whenever the rest of everyone plans on going clothing shopping. And my social worker better have that number right on the system because if not, I'm, I'm not going clothing shopping. If I want to go to school, I better be able to have my, you know, my behavior straight and do all these things before I can go to public school. And that's another thing. I didn't get a chance to go to public school. Yeah. I went to a institutionalized school where if I am taking a test and this kid next to me decides to have a complete episode and meltdown, I carry on, they take him out and that person is my friend. Mm -hmm. And I know my friend is hurting, but then I'm here. I have to take a test because this, (coughs) this right here is normal. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine just sitting here and doing your day-to-day work and somebody that you know that you live with because you're in this institution together is having a panic episode and they just pull him out and you still have to carry on? Yeah. That's that's not a childhood. That's not a life. So my whole entire identity, it was, I always felt like also, you know, 
it's crazy I'm able to talk about it because when I was in that place, I never thought there would be a day where I can talk about it because I'm like, this is going to sound so crazy to people. Nobody's going to believe this. This stuff is, that you'll see in the movies, you know, mm. but that was my life. Yeah. And that was my identity. Mm. The disposable girl that carried herself in trash bags because she was trashed to somebody else. She was trashed to our family. She was trashed to society. And she now carried, she's just now amongst everything. And at any given time, she could get thrown out, tossed out, go anywhere. Yeah. That's how I felt. Mm. And that that's who I felt like I was. Yeah. No, that breaks my heart to hear, but it makes so much sense that, that that's what the, that's what the story was around you. So that's how your brain translated it is surely there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Other people have stable homes and get to go mm -hmm. to school. Surely there's something wrong with me. Yeah. So it makes so much sense that 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 would be the story that would come around you and that your mind would latch on to. Yeah. This is this. Surely this is what it is. This is the problem. I'm the problem. It, it, it always felt that way, because I mean, like even when I was in meetings and stuff, even till today, when we work with with kids, I always make it a point. Let this child talk like yeah. let this kid talk, because sooner or later you're gonna you're you find yourself as a child being in and i was there like i remember one day um I, they, they gave me all these medications to take because it was right after the time where my dad decided to not take me home anymore mm -hmm. and it was right during that time when he had, he passed over you know this letter that the division of family and social services mailed to him asking him to go to court for a custody hearing. And before that court date arrived, he, he pushed that envelope to me and my caseworker was there and he says, I don't want her. Mm. And something in my head that day snapped. It just snapped and it was, and I was telling my husband I was crazy is that um, that snapping point happens to everyone in their different life. Sometimes it doesn't snap, right? But for me that day, something, this, some delicate wire that was meant for love and compassion and belonging, it just snapped like a twig. And it's, it was just gone that day. And I remember feeling completely just cold. And my, um, my psychiatrist came in shortly after that because I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping, I was just quiet. And he gave me medication, but that medication put me on fall risk that medication, like at any given time, I, I was just gonna faint. I felt, mm. I've never had problems with my blood pressure. The nurse that would take my blood pressure would say that I have some problems, you know, it's kind of low. And by the time it was my treatment team meeting, I said, hey, like, I feel like this medication isn't working. Yeah. The second that I said that, there was so much pushback from everyone on my team that I landed in a 72-hour room confinement. I stayed in my room with, with nothing sharp, nothing at all, for a 72 hour room confinement because that was taken as I wasn't gonna take my medication. Yeah. And that was medication refusal. Even mm -hmm. though it's my right to refuse, how it was treated, how I was treated for that mm -hmm. was was simply a, a systemic thing from if every child did that, there would be no control. Yeah. And I was, there I went again. I was dispensable, I was disposable. Mm -hmm. I was just there. Yeah. Yeah. You don't like your. I don't like your opinion. So I'll crumble it up and toss it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? You're literally at the mercy of others. Yes. Just even the story that you were recounting earlier about just simply going shopping. You you're at the mercy of if the person wants to take you shopping. If there's money to go shopping. If there's. This isn't like how some teenagers might feel or how some of us might have felt as teenagers of like oh, I'm at the mercy of my mom and she won't drive yeah. me. Yeah. This is a yeah. different type yeah. of. 
I'm at the mercy of my treatment plan, my treatment team to listen to me. I'm yeah. at the mercy of everybody. Yeah. And I've always been really, I, I've always done really well in articulating for myself. Speaking mm-hmm. up for myself has never been a problem. Um, how I was treated has been a problem. But then it breaks my heart to think about all the times when there were other people who are not very good at articulating for themselves. Mm-hmm. What happens to the ones with disabilities? Yeah. What happens to the one who don't talk very well, who can't find the right words, who can't muster the courage? What happens to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you saw, you heard what happened to me. Yeah. You know, so no. you can only imagine. No, I can't. Like, I know for, for me, just doing in-home therapy with kids on the spectrum, like they're very, most of my clients are in homes with parents that would do anything for them. But I think about that all the time of, what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. what if they end up in a situation and they can't say to mom and dad like this person hurt me um and i think that's when advocacy comes in and i've met some fantastic parent advocates but there's Mm -hmm. not nearly enough for disabilities like it drives me crazy on Mm -hmm. how easy it is that if you don't have a voice how easy it is to lose your voice and granted it's not the same but i do think that that's so much of what you're saying I relate to as an advocate for for disabilities of what it must be like to not have very many advocates Mm -hmm. that speak up for those in foster care like what would it be like to have more people who are speaking up yeah because with hospitalization hospitalization is that double-edged sword of yes their job is to stabilize but sometimes it can swing too far into but where is the coping where is the healing Um, yes, now they're stable, yeah. but like, but where yeah. is that part where we teach them how to heal? Mm-hmm. And a piece of that is sometimes that's not their job or that's not how someone views hospitalization. Yeah. And so that that's his own bag of, right. of things. Right. I feel like, you know, and, and the things that I share is not a jab at mm-hmm. like the foster care system mm-hmm. as a whole. My story within foster care has been completely, you know, all over the place. Yeah. But the message is caseworkers are are overworked, yes. underpaid. Mm-hmm. You think a, you think a teacher has a lot too? Mm-hmm. Tackle that on to like, you know, having, I heard a caseworker had over like 50 cases yeah. of children across the state that you need to see. Mm-hmm. And you need to see them every month. Mm-hmm. Fit all that into your schedule. How does that even work? You know, yeah. and so caseworkers are are over are overworked and underpaid. You have <laughs> inconsistency and in note translations. Mm-hmm. You have an angry child, and you have exhausted team members. You have burnout. You have all those things. So for a child who's going through their own episode and their own trials and series in life, sit amongst that. Mm-hmm. That is why we need more homes open. Yeah, take in that child take them in from this weather that's happening and and figure out a best plan do you want to adopt this child do you want to foster until independence or do you want to reunify mm-hmm. there's all these other options yeah. so yeah no uh, before we fast forward to those things I, I do want to hear from you what was your healing journey like from healing from because I'm looking at you now, and I know that you mentioned that you still have those moments, but I'm looking at you now, and you're running an organization, you're championing this cause. There had to have been a point where I, I, I Whitney, am disposable, began, began to be healed. And what was that like? So 
even so this part's always been really hard to talk about mm-hmm. um because I'm, i feel completely vulnerable when i talk about it yeah but i appreciate you asking that question because i think we do need to put that on the table too um anybody who's been through the foster care system it, it really sucks having to recover from that yeah. um i ended up meeting this man that is now my husband Mm -hmm. and I love him to pieces and he loves me to pieces. But before him, I also have, um, I also met my foster parents Mm -hmm. and I call them mom and dad and they are my mom and dad now. But, um, at the time, like they didn't give up on me. And I thought that was so strange because I'm like, you're not giving up on me. Like, you know, because it didn't matter how rude I was to them. It didn't matter how awful I was in times. They they never left. Like, they just never left. They were there every step along the way for my milestones. They they were there when I fell off those milestones. And then um, I met my husband, and he he loves me. Like, and when I say that, I say it because he is my, my permanent. Mm. He is my permanent. Mm-hmm. I have never, ever found permanency and he's my permanency he is somebody that i know no matter what will be by my side he will never be in another state he will never be in another location Mm -hmm. there will never be a day where i go on where he won't be there and that has been such an anchor for me but when i i I, we ended up having a child together Mm -hmm. the second i looked at my son i knew that i can't be disposable yeah and when i realized that i can't be disposable i found like this little silver lining of life Mm -hmm. you know and i wanted to do and i always get really emotional because i i want to do what's best for my son yeah i can't cut my core short Mm. i can't i can't give up because it's too hard to push through the next day this this little baby needs me and mm-hmm. as far as he knows, I am the best thing in his life. Yeah. So when I, when I saw him, I realized it didn't matter that my dad left me or my mom left me. It didn't, it didn't matter what happened to me. What matters is I don't do that to this little perfect bundle porcelain mm-hmm. joy. You know, like he's so perfect. And I was given a chance like a whole new beginning when I saw my son and he was it was from the way that he cooed to the way that he held my fingers it was it was like he was holding on to me and I real and I I just every single time when I feel like my because I still do I still do my brain just says go Mm. it says go let go when things are hard when I get stressed it tells me to let go that is trauma talking yeah that is trauma talking and it just says just just all it takes is one action, one second of pain, and you let it go. And there's even times where, you know, I, I battle with my son will be okay, everyone will be okay. But then I always, always remember when I, when I saw and I met my best friend of all times in the hospital. And, and I knew that's not an answer. Yeah. That is not an answer. Mm-hmm. So it was through my son and through through my husband and through my family where that trash can that I felt like I could just throw myself away in, I started Mm -hmm. kicking it away further and further. And I didn't kick away further and further from accomplishments. It was also with downfalls. 
It was also on days when I sit in the closet and I just cry and I cry because I don't feel brave enough to encounter something where I feel like I, I can't push through something. It could be as simple as, you know, my husband and I get into an argument and then there's this big part of me that says he doesn't love me anymore and he's going to mm. leave me. Yeah. He's going to find somebody better. Mm. And then I melt down and I break down and I turn back into little Whitney. Yeah. And But every time that happens... My husband will open up the closet. He'll come to my level. I will wipe my face. And then I walk outside of my bedroom door and I see my son playing. And it's, and it's a pinch. You know, when people say pinch me, I must mm -hmm. be dreaming. That's that little pinch that tells me I'm not dreaming. This is my reality. I'm not in a hospital anymore. Yeah. I am not captive to anything anymore. And I really can do this. So it's even not just, you know, I accomplish all these other things. It's when I can't accomplish them, when I have those moments of doubt. Use that and take that as a bat and swing that trash can a little bit further. Yeah. You know, and that's that's kind of how I got to where I'm at. And mm -hmm. I'm still working through it. Mm -hmm. So. No, I really appreciate you sharing that and being vulnerable. And sh that's not an easy ask so i do appreciate you sharing I that i feel comfortable talking because you're so nice because oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're so sweet oh thanks but um what i love is as you were talking i saw that connection of you found your belonging and you found the ones that love and see you you found that basic human thing that we all need in your mom and dad your husband and, and your son. And I think that that's, and what I also really appreciate that you said is that you're still on the journey yeah. because I think that that's a part of healing is that it is such a process. I think that for us, it is very easy, especially in Western cultures to think that I'm going to go to counseling. I'm going to take the medication. I'm going to do the thing and that's going to, to heal me. I can say just even from my study on trauma and then working with people who have experienced trauma, it's not, it's not that it is such a process. And I love that you brought that up because I think that that gives people hope and reminds them that they're not alone. And so if they're dealing with, with trauma, to know that it's going to take time and it's okay that sometimes you do go back to, as you said, little Whitney, because that's going to happen in the healing process. The goal is to not run away and you're not running away. I didn't have an example before about mm. what not running away looked like. Mm -hmm. I didn't. It was like everyone else did kind of ran away from me. They, they signed me out of their program. Yeah. They left me to figure out what was going on. But my... I, I had a foster family, which is my mom and dad. And then I had an independent living mentor, which is, her name is Esther. And then I have my husband. Those mm -hmm. three group of, of people, mm -hmm. they, they each were vital to being an, a, a model for me on what it means to not leave. Like, it, you know, it's such a blessing to be able to get in a fight with somebody and get into argument and, and not agree with them. And then they call back and go, hey, you still want me to carry this leftover for you? <laughs> like, yeah. you, still, you still want me to cook for you? That's family. Like the mm -hmm. second I experienced that, I couldn't believe it. Like yeah. for once I get, to, I get to speak my mind mm -hmm. and not only is it, you know, value, not only is it I get it, that's witty. It's just, just that nonchalant, candid connection. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I, you know, I, whenever I argued with my mom and dad, whenever I argued with my husband, they never left me. They never, ever left me. And they treated me not like some charity case, but they treated me like Whitney, the the person who is a person with Mm -hmm. opinions, with, with, with answers Mm -hmm. and somebody who's not worth leaving. That's how they saw me. And because of that, you know, I used to get in this really bad habit when I fought with my husband. My first thing to do was to pack my bags and go. And he used to call me afraid, wondering where I was. And I used to, my answer to him always was, I will be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I was, I remember driving in the car late at night. I have my suitcase. And I said, this feels familiar. Mm. It doesn't feel like a good familiar and I thought back of everything that Esther and mom and dad and Maurice were to me. And all of that pulled me back home and going, you know what? I'm not quitting because they didn't quit. Yeah. So. No, I love that. I love that that you had the foresight to see that because I do think that it's easy to keep going back to what's familiar, mm-hmm. even if it's not a good familiar. And yeah. so. I'm proud of you. I know we just <laughs> met, but I'm so proud of you. Um, I'm so proud of you being brave enough because that's so hard. Because even in like, yes, we all want healing, but healing doesn't feel good all the time. Healing feels yeah. like taking the bandaid off and having to restructure the bones and having to hurt. Yeah. And so I'm proud of you for, for doing it because Thank it's you. not an easy thing to do. No, it's not like there. I have um, we have an awesome uh, VP, and her name is Marissa. Mm-hmm. And um, I call Marissa, and I one day, you know, like you, everybody has like this like belief that you know when you're a leader, you can't like break down. You have to be really stoic. I am so far from that. Like yeah. I am so far <laughs> from that. I have a great mission. I I'm gonna I'm gonna do it to the best of my ability. But I am I know from my walk of life that I would be foolish to think that I shouldn't be transparent and be who I am to somebody that's my teammate. I will yeah. face burnout and so will this person if I don't communicate with them. Mm-hmm. So there was one night I called Marissa and I just cried and she's like, are you okay? And I said, I feel like I can't lead this organization. I feel like I am going to just quit, you mm-hmm. know, and, and everybody has their vice. Mm-hmm. My vice is running and quitting when my brain tells me you're mm-hmm. not up to this task. Mm-hmm. And she just tells me, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You can do it. And so I hear that. And in my brain, I reach out to little Whitney and I go, come on, mm-hmm. let's get up. Yeah. Let's get up. We, we got a lot of work to do and a lot of people to help. So get up with me and let's go. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's what I have to do all the time. Mm-hmm. So I would like to say that I am like four or five months into not saying that I'm going to quit, you know, like that everybody has their, their accomplishment. Everybody got goals. My goal is to keep going and telling all those little traumatic things in my head that tells me you got to quit. You need to stop. You're not worthy. They're going to throw you out like trash. I have to go back every single time and go, no, no, no. And that's rebuilding new habits. Mm. So I love that. That was a beautiful (laughs) breakdown of, what it takes to make new thoughts and live out those new thoughts because our thought life is woo, like my, <laughs> my brain goes a thousand miles a minute. Yeah. So yeah, though no, it's dangerous if, if you start giving in to the negative thoughts yeah. for sure. Yeah. So tell me about your organization. I would love for the listeners to be able to have that 
information and hear about yeah. you your like what how you built it what you guys do and also feel free to tell us how we can engage in it too just in your explanation and i think hopefully we should be able to add like connections and how we can connect to it so yeah okay. tell me about your business so our charity is a um we're super proud as a 501c3 charity girl when i tell you this is something i never thought could happen <laughs> it is something i never <laughs> thought could happen i'm like woo like yeah. we did it yeah. and it is a charity that in god's most miraculous beautiful ways he created a, a an ability for us to serve children and families in foster care mm. talk about everything that i went through and everything i just said literally there is a a palpitation and purpose in my everyday walking stepping out of bed life and yeah. so our charity um works to serve the needs of foster care so we are i would like to say what we do is well one of our biggest program dialing back one of our biggest program is that we provide housing for 18 to 21 year olds that are transitioning out of the foster care system yeah. there's not there's no normalcy for them they grew up in the same places that i grew up you know and so we have got to provide a program where they can come and, and be that individual adult Mm. and be there for themselves and have us to support them. Yeah. So we provide a fully furnished apartment. They stay in a 13-month-plus program. They go to school. We have one that is working at a hospital now. We have um, two that are working with court-appointed attorneys. Um, and we have another one that is actually uh, going to Savannah State University. And so we provide that means of independence for them. And they, they seek it out themselves. They, they put in their own their own legwork into it, and we're yeah. really proud. And um, in that program they know that they have shelter. Mm. They have permanency. Mm -hmm. they, have a, they have something where they can find themselves through. Yeah. And so we, we provide that and then we provide other services. And we're actually in 2020 coming in, we're gonna um, expand more resources, community, because mm -hmm. what we're finding out is to help youth in foster care you got to look around all these other things too. You mm -hmm. have to look into poverty. You have to look into education. You have mm -hmm. to look into at-risk and family preservation. So we're going to look into those areas and we're going to provide resources. We're going to do all of our research to make sure that there's services provided. But we are building an office um, in Pooler. Mm -hmm. And that office is going to provide a no questions asked, no judgments made. You come in and you can pick up a donation that you need to preserve your family. And believe it or not, that can be as simple as a pack and play, as simple as food for the day. Whatever it is that that family needs, they can have a place where they can come pick it up and preserve their dignity. Mm -hmm. And then we're also providing, um, we have a Christmas fundraiser going on. We provide holiday memories and, mm -hmm. and things like that too. Um, so our, our core truly is finding out what protecting children and families in foster care is like mm -hmm. and providing those services with as much dignity and compassion that we can have. Nobody mm -hmm. is a charity case. Like that's one yeah. thing that I, I would tell everybody. We are like we, <laughs> like me and, and everybody who's experienced the foster care system, it, there's no charity case here. Yeah. This is a come in and get the help that you need with your head held up high because you mm. got this, you know? Yeah. Same thing that I do carrying myself every single day. I got this, mm. you know? So um, we do that. And for anybody who would like to donate to us, it is going onto our webpage. It's at www 
gilliardandcompany.org and gilliard is g-i-l-l-i-a-r-d and you go on there or you can google you know um, foster care savannah foster care you know georgia and we'll pull up or you can go to our facebook which is at gilliard and company or you can find me on facebook and then you're gonna be able to find our charity and you can donate that way um we are asking right now kind of like the art of donation in a way where i try to explain to everybody um when you donate to us you allow the the lights to be on at an apartment when you mm. donate to us you allow food to be in the refrigerator mm. sometimes we do take an in-kind donations and we we are dialing back from that a little bit now because we do see that the state are, is able to provide some sort of clothing and stuff yeah. but most of the time when children come to us we want to give them brand new clothing yeah we want to give them a gift card Go mm. out and buy that T-shirt with a cat on it that you like. Yeah. <laughs> Go out there and, and get what you need. Fresh undergarments. Maybe you want to pick up something that's comforting for you. Go ahead and do it. But we can't do that without our community support. Mm. So that is that is a way where everyone can come in and be a part of fostering with us. Yeah. So. No, I love that. And I think just hearing your story, I just see how god is using your experience to redeem because honestly if i think about like okay if i were to build something that would impact foster care it wouldn't be as nearly as beautiful as what you just described because you have the insight to know that yeah gently used clothes are great but i would i love that idea of giving them a gift card to go buy the thing that they want to buy to have that ownership back because so much had been stripped away yeah. that if we can give them back yeah. integrity and give them back identity, I love that. So yeah. I'm super pumped and hurting <laughs> about your charity. I'm, I'm excited about that. Like, I, I just, I, I genuinely want to tell everyone, you know, you can give us your old shoes, that's mm-hmm. size seven, until there is a kid that comes in with a size seven, those shoes are gonna be sitting there. Mm. You can give us your medium shirt and it could be purple but we need a way for that one kid that comes in that wears that was willing to wear a medium purple shirt. Yeah. Otherwise, you know what we can do is take that shirt that's not this kid's favorite color, but they know that they're not in a position to be themselves right now. We'll go ahead and give that to that kid. How do you want it done? Mm. How do you want it done? You want it done the same way you want your child to be treated. Yeah. Give that kid something to look at and go, this is me. Mm. This is me. I am me and I'm not disposable. Yeah. I am I am able to find myself and carry myself and everything's going to be all right. Everything you described and everything I was looking at before I met you, I love it. I love empowering others and allowing people to get some sense of normalcy, especially in a in a such a I'm sure a crazy situation. I can't even imagine just the levels of trauma that can occur and just being able to step into that and advocate for them. I think that that's wonderful. Every kid that comes into foster care goes through at least at minimum, at minimum, two traumatic situations in their life. Mm. And that trauma can go anywhere from being locked in a closet Mm. to, I mean, we have one, somebody in our program that goes through that. And it can even be as your mom leaving you in your in the apartment as a small kid being yeah. subjected to different types of abuse i mean you think of all those horrendous situations two yeah at least two situations mm-hmm. that's minimum and then the rest of it gets tackled on and on and on so mm-hmm. i'm excited to have this opportunity mm-hmm. so that everyone can be a part of what we're doing yeah so no thank you for sharing that info and guys for sure go check that out <laughs> and so 
I could talk to you for forever because, yeah. like I said, we're friends now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are totes friends now. <laughs> but um, every week, whenever we have an episode, we like to close with a challenge from our guests. And so, Whitney, what would your challenge be to our listeners? A challenge. Jeez, there's a lot of challenges. <laughs> um, for anybody who's listening who's been in the foster care system, so I guess this isn't really a challenge, but Mm -hmm. one of my challenges would tell the community, come foster with us. You can't offer up your home. You can't offer up your time. Give us the ability to foster for you Mm. and in honor of you. Come come to our website and and tell us how you want us to do it. Mark in that monthly donation and let us foster and, and do that on your behalf in honor of your name and you get updates on what you can do. But I would genuinely say for anybody who's listening who has heard this story, it I don't know how a lot of people are going to feel about this, but I will say anybody who's been touched by the foster care system, anybody who's waiting to be adopted, try to understand where I'm coming from when I tell you, you getting fostered or adopted is not the epitome of your existence. Mm. It's not. If you don't get fostered, there's nothing wrong with you. If you don't get adopted, there's nothing wrong with you. And I challenge you to see that for yourself and look in the mirror and like who you see. Because yeah. there's, there's, I, I don't, I, I hate this, being able to say this, but it's not everybody's going to get fostered and adopted. That is yeah. the crisis we are facing right now. Not everybody's going to get fostered and adopted. So for those who don't, see it in your, I, I never got adopted. I got fostered, but I went through a turmoil time with my bio family where I couldn't, I just, I didn't get adopted. So I understand what that's like. And for anybody who's listening, if you've gotten adopted, if you haven't gotten, that is not the epitome of your existence. You are not less than lovable. You're not less than great. You're not less than you because you are not fostered or adopted. There's a lot of people who are homeless right now. There's a lot of kids that signing themselves out today, tomorrow, this month, and that number keeps going. Who, by when they place that pen on that paper, they know I have not. The fact is, no matter what else is a fact, the fact is I am not getting fostered and I've yeah. not gotten adopted. But that does not mean you are less. Yes. And so I. I would challenge anybody who's going through that, any foster parent, anybody who knows of a kid in foster care or who has been there and they feel down on themselves and they feel upset, that's not who you are. Mm. And I can't give you a better answer on why you haven't gotten fostered or adopted, but I know it's got nothing to do with how great of a person that you are. And so I, I want that. Anybody who's listening, who is in that position, that's not who you are. That's not the epitome of who you are. No. No, I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much for saying that because I think that that's important. And I'm so, 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 so happy that I met you. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and, uh, this was great. And I just appreciate your vulnerability and your sharing. And I can't thank you enough for that. It's a gift. Your story is a gift. Thank you. Being here is is awesome. Being able to, uh, to know that I can share this is awesome. So thank you. And thank everybody on this team for allowing me to be here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm glad God chose me. Yeah. So I'm glad God chose this opportunity. Amen. Yay. <laughs> well, listeners, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.